Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to this special live edition of the Seneca Podcast coming to you today from the Schwartzman College at Tsinghua University in Beijing. Let's see you Schwartzman scholars and other friends make some noise. <laughs> you guys. Don't you wish you had your guitar? Uh, do I wish I had my guitar, right? Okay, so the Seneca Podcast is, is produced in partnership with SupChina, which is the best way to keep on top of the latest news from China with our free email newsletter, our smartphone app, and, of course, at the website SupChina.com. If you folks in the audience haven't already subscribed, then do it now, and I promise I will not judge you or assume that you're ignoring me and playing Candy Crush on your phones instead. Uh, you'll see that, indeed, it is a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I am Kaiser Guo, and I am delighted to be joined here by Paul Henley, Maurice R. Greenberg, director of the Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy. Uh, Paul was a National Security Council staffer during both the Bush 43 and Obama administrations, looking after China, Taiwan, and Mongolia. Paul is an old friend, but somehow... We have not managed to get him on the podcast in the, my God, how many years that we've been doing this. And I should add that Paul and his colleagues host an excellent podcast at the Carnegie Institute. Uh, it's, it's the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. It's called uh, China in the World, and it's recently published its 100th episode. Yeah. So, in fact, we're going to make this one a crossover show that will run both on China in the world and here on Seneca. Uh, Paul, after all, has a great deal of insight to contribute, which as the podcast host, he is often obliged to hold back on. But now we're going to give him a chance to be on the other side of the table, as it were. So Paul Henley, welcome to Seneca at long last. Let's give a big round of applause to Paul. So, Paul, I want to start with a sort of quickie overview of your own involvement in China and in the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and China. So give us a sketch of how your uh, very interesting career led you to Beijing. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you, Kaiser, for hosting me on podcast, the Seneca podcast, which is a phenomenal podcast. As you said, we've been trying to do this for years, um, and I'm delighted that we're able to, number one, find time to do it. Number two, do it jointly with the Carnegie Tsinghua Center China and the World podcast. And number three, do it here from the Schwartzman College, because this is a fantastic program. Thank you, Joan Kaufman, for inviting me. And congratulations to all of you. You're, um, you're, you have a, an exciting year ahead of you. And uh, Carnegie Tsinghua Center has a great deal of collaboration with the Schwartzman College. So this was not the first and last time that I will see you 
uh, my colleagues at Carnegie Tsinghua Center will be engaging with you throughout the year. So I look forward to that. You I know, have had some fantastically interesting conversations with some of the Schwartzman scholars in, in a couple of yeah. days that I've been here. Uh, they're just a great group, and I'm really privileged to be here, and I think that they're going to get a lot out of this. Yeah? So Absolutely. So your, your history in potted form. So, you know, my, I, uh, when I went to college, I did ROTC. And so when I graduated, I was also commissioned a second lieutenant uh, in the U.S. Army. My plan was to do four years uh, active duty and then get out and pursue another career path. Part of that first four years, I was stationed in Korea as a company commander. And I took a trip to China. This was 1994. Mm. And strangely enough, when I was in China, and I say that I tell this story because there, were, there are things that will happen to all of you as students that will define your path going forward. And, and some of them, you know, may be very obvious. Some of them may not be. You know, when I came to China in 1994, I was on vacation. I was with a friend and she said, you know, sometimes the U.S. Embassy has a barbecue on Friday night. We ought to go to the embassy, see if we can get in and, and enjoy some Budweiser beer and hot dogs. <laughs> now think about it. this was 1994. This was pre 9-11. We walked up to the U.S. Embassy, showed our passport and they let us in. And within 30 seconds, we were in the Marine Guards, you know, barbecue area, drinking beer and meeting people in the U.S. Embassy. It would never happen today. It's like a fortress, right, right trying right. to get in there. But uh, while I was in there, I met an Army captain. I was a captain at the time, and I met this U.S. Army captain who was a Chinese speaker. He was posted at the U.S. Embassy, and he was part of this program called the Foreign Area Officer Program. Mm. It, I was ready to get out of the Army, and I heard about this program. Uh, I was fascinated by China. It was, uh, you know, an incredible time in China in the early 90s. Deng Xiaoping's southern tour had taken place in the early 90s, and you could just feel that China was at this turning point, this transformation point. And I got bit by the proverbial China bug and uh, was able to find a way to do it in the Army, and the program was the China Foreign Area Officer. So I learned the language, the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, uh, I served um, at the U.S. Embassy on two tours. I served in the Pentagon and the Joint Staff, or the Chairman of the Joint Staff, and then five years in the National Security Council. And that's, that was my experience on China in the U.S. Army and the U.S. government before I started with the uh, Carnegie Tsinghua Center. So I'm sure that there are people in the audience who aren't entirely familiar uh, with the work that the Ch Carnegie Tsinghua Center, or for that matter, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, actually does. So uh, can you maybe give the mission statement of your center, talk about some of its work, and explain the relationship between the Carnegie Tsinghua Center here and the Carnegie Endowment more broadly. Sure. I mean, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace is a, is a think tank. It's a foreign policy research center. You know, I will just say uh, when I was finishing up my time in, in the White House in the summer of 2009, and I got a call from Doug Paul, who runs the Asia program there, and he said, come, you know, when you finish up your tour in a couple of days, come talk to me about a job. I really had no interest, to be honest, working in a think tank and doing research in Washington, D.C. didn't seem to make sense to me that if you want to understand what's happening in China and the region of the Asia Pacific, I felt I needed to be in the region and looking at the issues. So I was, I was very much looking forward to moving to the region uh, after I left the White House and got out of the Army. And he said, well, actually, this opportunity is an opportunity to go to China and open up a research center in China under the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and do it jointly at Tsinghua University with the International Relations Department. The Carnegie Endowment for International Peace had decided 
in the mid-2000s under the leadership of Jessica Matthews, who was the president of Carnegie Endowment for 18 years, that if you're going to be looking at issues related to foreign policy and international affairs, you can't be a research center based in just one capital in the world and really understand the international issues from a range of perspectives. You have to have a local presence around the world in the strategic capitals, and you have to have local scholars that you work with that really understand those regions. And so Carnegie Endowment now has centers in Washington, D.C., which was started in 1910. Um, but now we have centers in Moscow, Beirut, Brussels. Beijing was the next center to open, which I opened in 2010. And then we opened a center in, in New Delhi, India, two years ago. And so this allows us really to work with scholars around the world uh, to better understand the major issues uh, in the international arena. And so Carnegie Tsinghua Center is, is one of those centers of the Carnegie Global Network of centers. I see. And what's the typical output from your, from your center? What do you, do you publish reports? So here at Carnegie Tsinghua Center, what we've, what we've tried to do is basically in three areas. One is research. Obviously, we do research and writing, and I encourage folks to go to the Carnegie Tsinghua Center website and see the work of our scholars in terms of our own publications. We do a lot of dialogue as well. Uh, Kaiser, I think you'll, you'll know that, you know, when it comes to working and trying to understand Chinese views and perspectives, it's very important to have that open aperture on dialogue. And That's so right. we do a lot of conferences and seminars and small, you know, private seminars, uh, dinners, executive breakfasts. We do about 100 events a year. And then our third dimension, which is really important, is uh, our work in the next generation of uh, experts. And so we have at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center Young Ambassadors Program, uh, and we focus very much on the next generation of leaders that will be out in the world uh, in short order working on these issues and, and having a big, big impact on those issues. We have now over 200 uh, alumni that have come through our Young Ambassadors program, and they're out there in New York City working in finance. They're in Washington, D.C., London, Beijing, around the world, and they come away from their time at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center with a better understanding of the issues that we work on. I understand that you were just named to the National Committee. Is that correct? You're, That's right. Yeah, that was that was quite a, an honor, the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. In, in 2002, I was actually selected for their U.S.-China Young Leaders Forum, uh, which brought together 12 Americans and 12 Chinese uh, to try to better understand each other just through developing friendships. And that program has grown since that time. Now there's well over 100 in the program. And so my involvement with the National Committee started there. It's a great organization, it as, is. As, as you know, and Joan knows, and others who work on China. Uh, we host a lot of delegations that they bring into town at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. And we've had a lot of good collaboration. And so it was a real honor to be invited to join the Board of Directors last year. Well, congratulations Thank on that. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Paul, among many other things, you're a real veteran of the U.S. DPRK, that is the U.S.-North Korea relationship, and of course... You're very intimately familiar with China's involvement in North Korea and in this sort of triangular relationship that's evolved. Uh, you were the American representative at the six-party talks, actually, in the period from 2007 to 2009, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and you've been watching closely what's been happening during the Trump administration from your perch here in Beijing, which I, I imagine must be fascinating. I think many people are very keen to understand how Beijing has viewed this whole process of understanding China's role in both the lead-up to President Trump's summit with Kim Jong-un in Singapore uh, 
and how things have evolved in the time since that summit, which was on June 12th. I know there's a lot, uh, but let, let's start with a quick maybe stage setting uh, with your own involvement in the U.S., North Korea, China diplomatic dance. Sure. Um, well, you're right. This is a fascinating place to watch the diplomacy that's taking place on North Korea. Beijing plays uh, an incredibly important and unique role. Um, and I look forward to talking with you uh, about that. I'll, I'll go back to my time. I was I spent three years in the National Security Council working directly for the National Security Advisor uh, as a special assistant in the front office. Uh, I was in the West Wing on the first floor, just about 30 steps down from the Oval Office. Uh, it was an exciting job. The pace was absolutely relentless. Uh, we worked six days a week. I was usually at my desk at 5.30 in the morning, and I'd go home about 11 o'clock at night, six days a week. And, you know, the world moves quickly, and a lot of things happen in the world. And so that's just the way that it works. But after those first three years uh, working for Condoleezza Rice and then her successor, Steve Hadley, I was given the opportunity to be the China director. But just as I was about to go into that position, the National Security Advisor said, you know, probably makes sense for you also to take on the portfolio of the six-party talk. And uh, probably for two reasons. One, I had a good relationship uh, with him and good communication with him. But two, the important role that China plays probably makes sense for the China director to be working on the North Korea issue because it's a hugely strategic issue with the US, in the U.S.-China relationship. If you look at the Trump administration, what are the two big issues on the China, uh, U.S.-China portfolio? It's trade and North Korea. It's unfortunate because I think the relationship is much broader, but this administration is really focused on those, on those two issues. So from 2007 to 2009, um, I had the opportunity working with Chris Hill, who was the U.S. chief negotiator, the U.S. Six-Party Talks envoy at the time was uh, Sung Kim, who's now our ambassador in the Philippines and, and is, is playing an important role in the negotiations today. During that time, there was a different leader in North Korea. It was Kim Jong-il. And, you know, we were not sure whether or not the North Koreans were going to give up their nuclear weapons under Kim Jong-il's leadership. And when asked whether or not they would, we would say, well, it's not for sure. But it seems as though Kim Jong-il has taken out an option to give up his nuclear weapons if the deal presented to him he sees as beneficial to North Korea. Right. And so if you remember during that time period, the negotiations were very active. We were traveling to the region at, at least once a month. We met the North Koreans in Beijing. We met the North Koreans in Geneva. We met the North Koreans in Singapore. I traveled to North Korea about a half a dozen times to, to negotiate with the North Koreans. Uh, they handed over, on one trip we went to their uh, nuclear complex in Yongbyon, they handed over operating records from their reactor there, which we were able to bring back to the United States uh, and examine for, for intelligence purposes. They even blew up their cooling tower, if you remember that, in front of international TV to show that they were serious about the negotiations. At the end of the Bush administration, unfortunately, Kim Jong-il had a stroke, and North Korea went into a leadership succession. Kim Jong-il's father, uh, Kim Il-sung, had planned for his son to take over for him for about 10 years. But Kim Jong-il had not thought about who his successor would be, and he had three sons to choose from. And so that leadership succession was then ramped up very quickly, 
And the last thing they wanted to do during that time was negotiate anymore. And so at the end of the Bush administration, the negotiations kind of went off track. And President Obama, I stayed on in the first year of the Obama administration, tried to keep the negotiations going, but it was very clear that North Korea was not interested. And so this is really under Kim Jong-un, when he decided in the new year, this year, that he would turn to, to diplomacy. And he would do that by participating in the Olympics in, in Korea. This was really the, the, the first real effort, serious effort at negotiations since the end of the Bush administration in 2008. Yeah, uh, and it's been fascinating. Uh, so great. Now, help us to get a sense of what China's position has been since the Trump administration took office in January of last year, elevated this issue once again to the very forefront of its foreign policy agenda. Uh, how has... China's position evolved, and to what extent, in your assessment, uh, did they really sort of give ground uh, and really try to carry through sanctions, uh, the UN sanctions that, that were, were imposed? Yeah, so China, I mean, one of the things we have to realize is China grew very frustrated. The leadership here, including anecdotally, we hear Xi Jinping, the president, grew very frustrated with the leadership in North Korea when they ramped up their nuclear testing and their missile testing. Uh, and they did that in, in 2017 and in, in 2016, 2017. Um, they, uh, they did missile tests uh, in um, May of 2017 during the Belt and Road Forum which was an incredibly important forum for the Chinese. They conducted their last nuclear test in September 2017, the day that Xi Jinping gave a keynote speech at the BRICS summit. I mean, the Chinese were, for their own reasons, very upset with North Korea. And I think they had their own set of reasons why they joined the maximum pressure campaign and the UN Security Council resolutions. At the same time, here they see President Trump unpredictable, impulsive. Um, you know, his rhetoric was warlike at times. Fire and fury. Fire and fury. And I think the Chinese were also worried about potential conflict. And so for their own reasons, I think they joined the maximum pressure campaign also to avoid an outcome uh, of conflict, which was the last thing that they wanted to see. So they joined the Security Council resolutions. North Korea, obviously very upset that, that China had aligned closer with the United States and, and South Korea and Japan. At the end of 2017, the China-North Korea relationship was the worst that it had been probably in history. That's right. Even worse, I, would, uh, I talked to a Chinese expert yesterday on North Korea who said it was worse than when China renewed relations with South Korea, which was a bad point hmm. in relations with between China and North Korea, and during the Cultural Revolution. What were some of the manifestations of that bad relationship besides so the, the border had been closed? There were, yeah, I think the biggest was signing on to that last set of UN Security Council resolutions right. was cutting off a large percentage of refined uh, uh, and, and crude oil. And I think this uh, really stung the uh, North Koreans. So, you know, this is the end of 2017. Um, the last nuclear test, which took place in September, uh, citizen, North, Chinese citizens in, North, in the northern part of China were worried about radioactive fallout coming into China. And so the Chinese leadership uh, was really concerned about developments in North Korea. Now, Donald Trump then in the spring of 2018, out of nowhere, 
announces through the South Koreans that he's willing to meet with Kim Jong-un. Now, it was very interesting to be here in Beijing because talking to Chinese experts uh, immediately after we heard the announcement, the response from Chinese was, you know, this is good because we've been telling the Americans this is a U.S.-North Korea problem. This is not a Chinese problem. This is a U.S.-North Korea problem. And the way to solve it is through dialogue. So we're glad that your president has decided to meet with the North Korean leader. On day two, however, it was a very different response because the Chinese realized our relations with North Korea are at the worst point in history. And Donald Trump could come in and strike some grand bargain with North Korea. And South Korea now is, is, is in uh, diplomacy with North Korea. And China, we're sitting on the sidelines watching this as a spectator. And China realized that's not the position we, we want to be in because we want to be in a position through this diplomacy to make sure our interests are taken into account. And so uh, President Xi Jinping, who had not met Kim Jong-un since he came to power several years before, immediately, you know, they reached out to the North Koreans and said, let's meet. And uh, that meeting between Kim Jong-un and Xi Jinping gave China a place in the negotiations. And before Donald Trump met with Kim Jong-un on June 12th, the Chinese leader met with uh, Kim Jong-un Kim Jong twice. That's right. And both times was just before Secretary of State Pompeo went to North Korea. So China got a seat back at the table, and I think they, fought, they thought that was very, very important. Presumably the worry was, in that moment when they thought they might have been frozen out, that they had wanted something out of this. Because at the same time, trade tensions between China and the United States were, had already been ratcheting up. Conventional wisdom says that what they were looking for was for Trump to back off on threats of tariffs in exchange for China doing its level best to bring North Korea to heel. And they, they felt sort of that this deal had been sort of uh, now jettisoned. And, and, and now here we are, mm. where the trade, we're you know, very much in the midst now of a full-blown trade war. More tariffs are being floated right now. Uh, how does China feel about uh, how all this has worked out? With, uh, they feel like they were betrayed somehow, that the promises made for their participation in, in, uh, in North Korea hadn't been fulfilled. You know, I'm sure that, that that's part of their thinking. I mean, Donald Trump uh, uh, was very explicit in saying that if, you know, China had cooperated on North Korea, he would take it easy on China on trade. And that, that certainly has not panned out. So they've probably come to the conclusion that, you know, you, you can't necessarily trust what President Trump says when he, <laughs> he's going to take a concession. You know, China joined on to the maximum pressure campaign, uh, which was very helpful in getting the North Koreans to the negotiating table. And President Trump pocketed that concession as he sees it uh, by the Chinese and then moved forward harshly on, on tariffs on China. So I'm sure somewhere in the Chinese thinking that, that there is that, that the, China, the U.S., that President Trump himself, he's the only one that I know in the administration that's linked the two. You don't hear that from senior officials. And my understanding in talking to senior officials in the Trump administration is, you know, that that's not anywhere in their recommendations or strategy to try to link the two of them. That just complicates matters. You ought to take them on, uh, you know, China has its own interests with North Korea as well. China, you know, would like to see a North Korea without nuclear weapons. And so it's important to keep that in mind. So we, 
we're aligned in that regard with China. However, uh, it's very interesting. I, I hosted Chris Hill this spring here just before the Singapore summit. And in our discussions with the Chinese, I asked a question, you know, would, would China like to see North Korea without nuclear weapons? And the answer was yes. And I said, what if that meant a unified Korean peninsula that was aligned with the United States? And they said, oh, absolutely not. <laughs> and so what you see there then is that geopolitics, the, you know, China's own strategic influence in the region, they want to maintain that. And so that case, geopolitics trumps denuclearization. No, no pun intended with Trump's. But I mean, it's just geopolitics in that case is more important to the Chinese. And so the Chinese being able to maintain their strategic influence, their strategic position in Northeast Asia is hugely important. And they see that as a zero-sum game. If China, if the U.S. is able to, through under Donald Trump to improve its relationship with North Korea, South Korea improves its relationship with, with North Korea, that this will somehow have a, a negative effect on, on China. So when Trump emerged from talks, and suddenly announced to the surprise of many people that he would be suspending the joint military exercises with South Korea afterward. I think a lot of people who were familiar with China's position on North Korea said, hey, well, now that sounds awfully familiar, because for years China had been been pushing this, this proposal called double freeze, right, which would be, well, suspension of the joint uh, military exercises in return for North Korea agreeing to freeze its ICBM and... and uh, nuclear programs. What's different about what Trump has proposed and, and how did Beijing react to, to this proposal? You know, the Singapore summit, in, in my mind, um, you know, was, was not a success. Um, I think you could put it, I think you could say in many ways it was, it was a failure. Um, you know, President Trump uh, went in with very high ambitions. You know, we're going to get the North Koreans. I mean, at one point, he and the administration were talking about at the Singapore summit, the North Koreans would uh, agree to give up their nuclear weapons, and they would start bringing pieces of the nuclear reactors and things back on the tail end of the visit. I mean, this was the sense that you had in terms of the goals that they set. Um, you're absolutely right, Kaiser. The Chinese, uh, under Foreign Minister Wang Yi, had talked about the situation using an analogy of two high-speed trains the, the situation on the Korean Peninsula is like two high-speed trains getting ready to collide. The high-speed trains are North Korea and the United States. Now, U.S. officials would, took umbrage at that because, you know, we didn't see ourselves in the United States as a high-speed train out of control. I mean, we were unified with South Korea and Japan and China, we thought, in trying to get North Korea to give up its nuclear weapons. And so, which... There are 11 U.N. Security Council resolutions saying that North Korea needs to stand down on its nuclear program. So the notion that, you know, there's some moral equivalency between what North Korea is doing to build up this illicit nuclear program and what the United States and South Korea is doing in terms of joint military exercises to prepare themselves for the eventuality that the North Koreans follow through on the threats that they've made uh, the notion there's some moral equivalency, you know, was not, uh, did not go over well in Washington. And so they said, you know, this dual freeze idea is not something that we're interested. Because, you know, North Korea freezes its nuclear tests and missile tests. 
and the U.S. and South Korea stand down on their exercises was not something that was appealing to the United States. But as you say, that's basically what the outcome was. Now, did Trump not get the memo? I mean, how did he go <laughs> so completely off? It's a great question. You know, I was just back in Washington. I met with a senior DOD official and I said, were you surprised? Number one, we don't call them provocative war games. That's what North Korea calls them. China calls them that too. Uh, but, but Trump adopted We call that them very legitimate language. defensive military exercises with our ally. And so the notion that President Trump would agree to stand down on provocative war games is, is shocking. And so I asked this DOD official, you know, did you see that coming? And he said, no, not, not only did I not see it coming, the North Koreans didn't even ask for it. So could I this, don't... Could this be the guy who wrote the anonymous op-ed? Yeah, <laughs> maybe. So, the, you know, I mean, I, I realize I'm coming across as quite, quite critical, but, you know, for the guy who wrote The Art of the Deal, claims to be a great negotiator, you know, you now have a situation... First of all, the North Koreans have wanted a meeting with the U.S. president since 1972. So uh, the idea that, you know, well... President Trump was the first one to sort of step forward and meet with the North Koreans. President Bush, President Obama, the presidents I worked for, they could have met with the North Korean leader. That was not difficult. The question was, how do you use the prospect of a meeting like that, which the North Koreans want badly, as leverage to get the North Koreans to do what they don't want to do, which is to give up their nuclear weapons program? Now, the, also, the statement that came out of the Singapore summit was, in my view, the weakest statement we've had coming out of a negotiation with the North Koreans. I would encourage you to go and read the September 19, 2005 joint statement, which is the statement that China, as the chair of the six-party talks, brokered with North Korea. South Korea signed on, Japan, Russia, the United States, and North Korea. And it's very explicit in that statement what North Korea has to do in terms of giving up its nuclear weapons programs. Um, it was not explicit at all. It was extremely vague in the Singapore summit statement. It was also listed after improving bilateral relations. And so now the North Koreans are saying, well, there's a sequence to all of this. And we're not going to give up our nuclear weapons until we improve relations and until we have a declaration to end the war. And, of course, the fear there is if you have a declaration to the end of the war, then what's the purpose of having U.S. troops in South Korea? So I think that we're in actually a worse situation than we were before the Singapore summit. And you're seeing that play out now, of course, because Secretary of State Pompeo has traveled to North Korea once. He said, let's talk about denuclearization. And North Koreans said, why are you coming at us like a gangster, you know, using gangster-like tactics? And so, uh, and they just canceled this. Yeah, so yeah, what does that mean, the, the, the planned trip being canceled? Do you know the backstory here? Apparently there was another bellicose letter that, that had come from North Korea. Do you, do you know why Pompeo, or I think it was Trump actually who, who canceled Pompeo's trip. So now there's um, Secretary of State Pompeo. There's also Steve Began, who, who I know and I think very, very highly of, who now is the North Korea envoy in the U.S. government. They were planning a, a trip to North Korea to, to once again, you know, come and talk about denuclearization and what would North Korea do to show concrete steps in that regard. 
it was pretty clear, I think, they all went over and met with President Trump in the Oval Office. I think it was pretty clear that North Korea was not in a, just not in a mood to discuss denuclearization. They want a declaration to end the war. They want steps to improve the relationship, and they want uh, relief from the sanctions. And so I think it was clear that this trip, if they had gone, uh, would have been a failure. And so uh, they, they canceled it. And I think it's probably the smart thing to do. But, you know, the other thing that President Trump, I think, did that's unfortunate at the Singapore summit is he did not properly empower Secretary of State Pompeo. Now the North Koreans, you get the sense that Kim Jong-un really only wants to deal with That's President right. Trump. Now, here's a guy that he talked to. He says nice things about him. He was willing to meet him. He canceled uh, provocative war games. Um, you know, he did all of the, He let him off the hook, I would say, on denuclearization. Here comes Secretary of State Pompeo. And if, if, if you've watched Secretary of State Pompeo in Senate hearings and things like that, he's a tough guy. Uh, why would they want... I mean, Pompeo's the denuclearization guy. He's the guy they, they don't want to talk to. They want to talk to President Trump. They get concessions when they Maybe talk to Maybe if they Trump. threw in Rodman, too, that would be... A yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know. They, is, is, so, and this summer, President Trump tweeted out he's looking forward to, to meeting Kim, Kim Jong-un. If he meets Kim Jong-un again without any steps taken by the North Koreans on denuclearization, I think you, they will come to the conclusion that the U.S. has acknowledged that North Korea is a nuclear state. Hmm. Now, Secretary Pompeo is not the only foreign dignitary to decide not to visit North hmm. Korea very recently. Recently, Xi Jinping, who was supposed to go in this couple of days, uh, is not going and standing in his, in his stead. Uh, Li Janshu, who's also a, a Politburo Standing Committee member yeah. and a very powerful man. He's the head of the National Party Congress. Uh, but the, the timing is also significant because this is the 70th anniversary of the founding right. of the uh, of the DPRK, uh, September 9th, I believe it would have been for, right. for the big uh, celebrations. What signal is being sent, and to whom is it directed? Yeah, so there was some speculation that that Xi Jinping would go. Um, now it's interesting that this decision came so late. I mean, today is what, September 6th. The decision was yesterday. It's four days before. So there was obviously some deliberations at the senior levels of the Chinese leadership. My sense is, um, for a number of reasons, uh, they decided to send Li Jianchu. We should not, you know, as you say, he's, he's, he's in the standing committee. He's ranked number three. Pretty senior person to go. I think it was one of the considerations of the Chinese leadership was, you know, at this time where, you know, you've got the trade war going on, China's not necessarily looking to provoke the United States any, any more than, you know, it has to, number one. Number two, President Trump just canceled Pompeo's visit because North Korea is not cooperating on denuclearization. And so for President Xi Jinping to go to North Korea at this time... The optics would have and been... And President Trump has, he's the only one, by the way, in the administration who has suggested that perhaps the Chinese behind the scenes, because they're mad at the, about the trade war, are slowing down North Korea in terms of negotiating on denuclearization. And so with all of that out there, I think the leadership in China probably decided 
probably optics not good to be standing for Xi Jinping, standing next to Kim Jong-un, watching a military parade uh, in North <laughs> Korea. Um, some also say that, and I think there's probably some truth to this too, if Xi Jinping goes, he wants it to be his show, not somebody else's show, standing by watching some demonstration of North Korean military prowess. So uh, I think it makes sense to me to send Lee John Shu. I think it was the right decision uh, by China. It also leaves China some room, right. uh, incentives in the future for, for Xi Jinping to go if North Korea gets things sort of back on track. Now, that was precisely my read on this, that, that the optics would have been absolutely horrible, that it would have actually weakened China's position vis-a-vis -vis the United States. It would have played into Trump's sort of paranoid theory that now uh, China is deliberately trying to throw a spanner into uh, the evolving relationship between the DPRK and the USA. So, yeah, probably a smart move. And South Korea also, you know, they've just announced that the South Korean leader will go to Pyongyang on September 18th uh, and meet with the North Korean leader. That ha runs the risk also of appearing out of sync with what's happening. And so as you hear the South Koreans talking about it, they're emphasizing the importance of North Korea taking steps on denuclearization. They don't want to get too out of whack with the United States uh, either. It's obviously the most important issue to the United States, uh, the denuclearization issue. Other countries care about it, maybe not uh, as much as the United States. So, Paul, you recently uh, led the Carnegie Track 1.5 dialogue with China. Uh, for those who are not steeped in diplomatic parlance, uh, first, could you explain what Track 1 and Track 2 dialogues are and what a Track 1.5 is and what Carnegie's involvement was? Sure. So one of the things that uh, we do fairly regularly is bring together experts from the United States and, and China, not just the United States and China, but in the context of U.S.-China relations. Uh, we bring experts together from both countries, go through kind of the list of, of issues on the bilateral agenda, and uh, try to work uh, these issues, come to some greater understanding, uh, try to find constructive solutions to problems, and then go to uh, our respective governments um, and share with them the results of, of our dialogue and make recommendations on, on ways that they may be able to solve problems or work through potential impasses. That's track point two when you just have experts. When you bring in government officials to the discussions, we call it track 1.5. And this U.S.-China dialogue that we've had, strategic dialogue, we've been doing now for two years. It was originally asked for by a vice premier in, in China that these uh, track two discussions would take place, and Carnegie took over as the U.S. represented two years ago. We decided this year we'd do it a little bit different and bring in Chinese officials when we hold the discussions here in Beijing, and then Trump officials when we hold the discussions in Washington, because it's, uh, it's, a, it's a more difficult environment to go into the Trump administration these days and, and make suggestions and recommendations. You don't often feel like you're necessarily being heard. And frankly, the suggestions of maybe some of the cabinet secretaries and senior officials in the U.S. government aren't penetrating the Oval Office either. So we thought it was more important to bring in those Trump officials and discuss from a range of, of agencies you know, we had representatives from the White House, the National Security Council, Treasury, Who are you uh, able Commerce, to bring in? Senior officials from the Trump Are you able to name any names? I probably won't name them here. Okay. No, but um, we want to we be, you know, we want to, you know, make sure that in the future they'll 
talk candidly and 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 openly and don't want to. And what about from the Chinese side? Can you name some names of participants on the Chinese? So we probably don't name the the U.S. or Chinese officials because you want to you know you want to incentivize them to come in and, and and talk and talk openly. But one of the things I think one of the outcomes of our discussions this summer. Uh, I think we, you could see from the range of officials that we brought in from the different agencies that there's a lot of different perspectives and different views, and there's not a cohesive, unified position on many of the issues, including... On either side. On, I think I would argue more probably on the U.S. side these days. Oh, uh, we didn't get that sense necessarily uh, Well, we're here. aware of the major schisms between sort of... Yeah. The, uh, but yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Could you talk about what some of the main agenda items were? So we, you know, our agenda items are across the board. I mean, the U.S.-China relationship is is pretty comprehensive, you know, security issues, political issues, economic issues. But you will not be surprised to find out that trade and economics dominated uh, our discussions. And I think one of the big takeaways from our discussions, at least in talking to the Chinese uh, representatives, there was a view here, I think, in China until recently that the whole trade uh, tariffs and and pressure from President Trump was mostly about President Trump's short-term political imperatives. That is to say that Trump wanted some victories that he could tweet out as sort of tweetable victories to tell his base, look how tough I'm being on China. And you remember Liu He, this uh, President Xi Jinping's senior economic uh, advisor went to the United States and thought he had struck a deal where China would would buy more products. Seventy billion dollars of yeah right. from the United States and came home and I think basically reported you know I've I've struck a deal, and then President Trump himself spiked that deal, um, and now I think coming out of our discussions this summer I think the Chinese believe that this is a longer term issue. There may be elements of this that de- that have to do with Trump's short-term political imperatives. There's always domestic politics involved in these things. But the idea that there's an off-ramp before the midterm elections or that there's some off-ramp uh, in the near term uh, that China will be able to come and strike some deal, I think they left thinking that that's probably not possible right. and that these issues deal in in many ways with U.S. concerns about long-term competition between the United States and China. Now, on the uh, trade and economics front, I will give the Trump administration credit for one thing, and that is raising this issue, getting the attention of the Chinese leadership that the trade and economic relationship needs to be recalibrated. Chinese are listening. They want to know how they can get out of this particular predicament. The problem is now that you have the attention of the Chinese, the Trump administration needs to be able to draw back on a strategy that can be effective and can address what I would say are the real structural issues in the U.S.-China relationship. One I know you talked about this morning, which is China's industrial policies. That's right. Market access. IPR, forced technology transfer, issues related to reciprocity. You know, when China joined the WTO in 2001, it got preferential treatment because it was really a developing country. It was, I think, the seventh or eighth largest economy in the world. It's now the second largest economy in the world. 
So China's come to realize that it's not just about, okay, we will buy more American goods. It's not just about increasing market access and consumer goods. It's specifically about these these other issues, about forced technology. They're hearing this more and more. And we heard it in our Track 1.5 discussions. And I think that that's a positive development. You know, I'm not a big believer that the trade deficit is, you know, a good barometer for the health and welfare of any bilateral relationship. And, uh, you know, when you're asking the Chinese to buy more products, what is that? I thought you were supposed to stand for markets, free markets and all the rest. So um, and tariffs, I don't think, is the answer to our issues that we have with China on the trade and economic relationship. So I was pleased to see more of a discussion in our from Trump officials on some of the more structural issues. Now, the problem is, I mean, the, the, the other thing is about the structural issues. We have common concern on these with our friends in Europe and many like-minded nations here in Asia. Uh, and so in my mind, any effective strategy to get the Chinese to make the changes that they're resisting making, I think we would be in a much better position. We'd have much more leverage if we would work with our European friends, if we would work with our friends in Asia to go to the Chinese and say, it's not just the United States that has these concerns. And this seems to be happening, and China seems to have been caught quite flat-footed, not expecting that, that you would see that sort of uh, coming together between the EU and, and I mean, they had... Uh, sort of reveled for the, in, in the initial periods as aluminum and, and steel tariffs were announced, and that that seemed to pit the United States against some of its traditional allies. And now they're coming together and they're talking to them about technology policy. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, starting with the steel and aluminum um, tariffs and, and, and going after our friends in Europe and, and friends here in Asia just simply allowed China to stand back and say, you know, it's not us that's the problem here. It's clearly the United States, and, and we're all, you know, we're all, uh, you know, being hurt by the United States. But when Juncker came to the United States this summer and they were able to work out some deal, I think, you know, they're now beginning to see. But I don't think the administration is working closely enough with our friends in Europe and friends in Asia to approach the Chinese. One of the things we heard from Trump officials this summer was the real issue is China. You know, if you look around the world at all of the problems that the United States has on economics and trade, the real issue that needs to be addressed is with China. And if that's the case, then we ought to be working closer, I think, with, with partners around the world uh, instead of trying to punish everybody all at the same time. Let's shift gears and talk a little bit about uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. And I want to get your sense of how uh, you would characterize American attitudes towards Xi Jinping's signature initiative. It seems like the American narrative is sneering and jeering, defining it as kind of debt trap diplomacy. That, that seems to be the thing, uh, a f- species of neocolonialism, uh, kind of reveling in, in the, the trip-ups that they've had, Mahathir coming in and canceling pr- projects, problems that they've had in uh, a number of places right now. Is America missing an opportunity here? And uh, is this a healthy approach to uh, to what China is doing? You know, Belt and Road Initiative, uh, Schwarzman scholars, if they don't know already, will find uh, this is a big deal here. 
This is a signature initiative by President Xi Jinping. It's now written in the Constitution. It's a huge deal, uh, especially if you think about it from the standpoint of, you know, when you were here, Kaiser, they were still in the Tao Guangyang Hui phase of things, right? This was the Deng Xiaoping dictum that China should bide its time and hide its capabilities or keep a low profile internationally. It was only five years ago, really, that, you know, she, China under President Xi Jinping shifted course and now on the international front has a much more ambitious strategy. And this is, you know, really one of the flagship, you know, initiatives of that more ambitious strategy. 65 developing countries, you know, connectivity, infrastructure. It's extremely ambitious. And, you know, I think the Chinese leadership, when they, they talk about it, they say, look, this is not a strategy. It's an initiative. It's not about geopolitics. It's just about infrastructure and connectivity. Part of it is just the, the, the Chinese word for strategy, Mm. having the word war in it. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the, the allergy comes. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, developed countries around the world uh, are, have a hard time, you know, believing that. Sure. Because the truth is, if the Belt and Road Initiative is successful, uh, it will give China greater strategic influence around the world. There's no doubt about it. You already see signs of that where, you know, countries will you know, uh, resist signing on to statements critical of China. These happen to be countries that are receiving a lot of assistance from China in, in the Belt and Road. And so... We're seeing this in Central Asia with Pakistan. And in Eastern the, Europe as yeah, well. Sure, sure, uh, and so, you know, if they're successful, this will certainly help them from a geopolitical standpoint. Um, but, you know, this is, I think, uh, you know, China is also, to a certain extent, underestimating the challenges and the complexity of doing something so uh, ambitious. And so, you know, in terms of the U.S. position, I would say this. I think the U.S. administration, the Trump administration responded to it probably better than the Obama administration responded to the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. Right. Which, so, when, when it went around and told its allies, please don't sign on. Please don't guys. sign on to this. And then they all went on to do so. It's tough, you know, when in the Bush administration and the Obama administration, of which I served, as China grew more powerful and more influential, we were encouraging China to take on more, to contribute more to international public goods. And here's a case where China says, look, you know, there's a gap in infrastructure spending. Uh, we're going to build this Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank to address that. Um, the first word out of our mouth shouldn't be to oppose it. Right. And, you know, you can say, it's great you're stepping up. It's great you've decided to contribute to public goods and in the infrastructure area. We do have some concerns, and you can address those concerns. I think the Obama administration, as you said, opposed it and even tried uh, to get other countries to yeah, resist joining it. Beijing sees Belt and Road as provision of public goods in the world, too, right. and wonders why this, this mistake is being made again. But the administration, Trump administration hasn't opposed it. They haven't. No. Uh, they did send uh, Matt Pottinger, the senior director for Asia and the National Security Council, to the to the Belt and Road Forum in May of 2017. But but I think you're, you know, you're you're on to something. I don't think they you know necessarily think too highly of it. And you and you're right. There's some sneering and jeering. My own view is, you know, it's it's right to be worried about 
things like transparency and sustainability, uh, environmental issues, labor aspects of it. Um, you know, we should definitely press to make sure that projects within the Belt and Road have all of that. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we shouldn't be working to actively oppose it. You know, if we want to, we should try to find ways to partner where it makes sense and where those high standards exist. That's one way to make sure that those high standards uh, do exist. But we should also, uh, as a country, be putting forward other alternatives for countries. That's right. And stepping out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, in the first week of the Trump administration, I think didn't doesn't demonstrate to the Asia-Pacific, at least, you know, the, the, that America is here in the region, is committed to the region, and is putting forward appealing and, and you know, credible um, opportunities for countries to, to involve themselves with in. And now that President Trump has decided not to come out to the region, you know, for APEC uh, and for the ASEAN meeting, once again, I think it makes it very difficult for the Trump administration, you know, to demonstrate uh, that, it, that it's committed to the Asia-Pacific. And you know, on one hand, I suppose it's, you know, not having President Trump come out might be okay because you can avoid some disasters. But <laughs> on the other hand, you know, you do want to put out credible alternatives. Uh, that's the way I think if you want to compete with the Belt and Road, that's the way you do it. I mean, in that case could be made that our agenda items, better governance and better sustainability, are better achieved from participation from the inside. I mean, I think that the, the case of AIIB kind of illustrates this. Look, look what's happened with the AIIB. You know, the Chinese voting rights have been severely diluted. And according to very reputable people, people who were involved in, in, uh, in setting up AIIB on the legal side, people who come from Bretton Woods institutions, it's getting very high marks. Well, the interesting thing there, Kaiser, I think you're absolutely right, the arguments we were making to China in the 1990s, uh, encouraging them, urging them to consider joining the WTO, they said, well, we weren't there when the institution was created. We said, well, if you want to shape it, you need to do it from the inside. So That's right. that was our own argument that we used with the Chinese. I think you're absolutely right on the AIIB. The, if you want to shape it, if you're worried about standards and, 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 and the like, the way to do it is, is, is to get in and, and shape it from the inside. One last topic before we move on. Uh, I want, uh, the, you know, there are a host of hot button issues that uh, plague the bilateral relationship right now. Uh, one of them, of course, is Taiwan. Mm. Uh, the administration is taking a very different approach with Taiwan than really has been the case for a very long time, not since, you know, George H.W. Bush's presidency began. Uh, is the consensus in Washington fundamentally changing right now? And uh, is Beijing, in your estimation now, in response, kind of maybe shifting back its own red lines a bit on the issue? I, I was, for instance, pretty impressed with how muted the response was to Tsai Ing-wen's transit through, mm. through the United States recently. What's your sense of this? Well, you know, the Taiwan issue has been very interesting from the start of uh, Trump administration before the Trump administration began. Of course, right. you remember the phone call, right? President Trump took a phone call from President Tsai Ing-wen and then said he wasn't sure he was going to abide by the, the U.S. one-China policy because China wasn't cooperating on North Korea and helping us on trade. So I think 
President Trump's inclination early on was Taiwan was something that China cared about deeply, and so therefore he could use it as some sort of bargaining chip or some leverage. That unfortunately will will not work, and I think smart advisors ultimately talked him out of it, uh, which is a good thing. You do see some you know advi- some officials in the administration are pushing for you know improved coordination and relations with Taiwan. I think uh, there's also, I would say, on the Chinese side, however, since President Tsai Ing-wen uh, from the DPP, you know, won uh, the presidency, the pressure on the Chinese side has also gone up. You know, over the last two years, for example, um, the Chinese have opposed uh, Taiwan sending a representative to the World Health Assembly. I mean, this is a international body. Joan knows it well. I mean, this is... You're, you're, you're working to, you know, pr- you know work, bring countries together on global pandemic disease, right? What's the, what's the rationale for opposing a representative from uh, an entity with 23 million people from not going? And oh, by the way, uh, when the Taiwan health minister can't go to the World Health Assembly, guess where he does go? He goes to the United States. And then, of course, China opposes that. So, <laughs> there, there is increased pressure from Beijing on Taiwan, military. You know, there's been four transits, I think, of mm-hmm. the Chinese aircraft carrier, the Liaoning. Uh, there's exercises. Uh, there's a number of, of pressure points in the diplomatic campaign where, you know, there, there was a diplomatic truce where Taiwan could keep its international dip- diplomatic partners around the world. China wouldn't go after those. Over the last couple of years, that's those changed. Those are in play again, yeah. Those are in play. China's taken a handful of those back. So when China puts pressure like that on Taiwan, there are second and third order consequences to that in terms of the U.S.-Taiwan relationship. Right. And I think China needs to keep that in mind. I will just say one thing. You know, they're worried about Tsai Ing-wen. She's from the DPP. She won't sign on 100% to the 92 consensus. But, you know, I was the China director in the White House when Chen Shui-bian was the president. Tsai Ing-wen is no Chen Shui-bian. That's right. She's and much more moderate. She's much moderate, more and I think the Chinese would do, you know, themselves a service by trying to figure out a way to enter into some dialogue. That's and, right. And, and to deal with her in a more rational, more more moderate position. And I think that'll prevent the situation. I agree with you. The Taiwan issue is one of the most significant and most, and most sensitive. And, and if we're not careful, you know, we could see a downward spiral. And I think one way to kind of reverse these trends is for China to sort of back off. Well, Paul, I mean, this is, this is terrific. Uh, and thanks so much for taking the time. Let's move on now to the recommendations segment. Mm. But before we do that, I want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina. Subscribe to SubChina's premium access service and enjoy extra content, including additional newsletters and stories and early ad-free access to this very podcast. Seneca is the flagship podcast in an expanding network of podcasts that now includes the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, and the New Voices podcast. Also, make sure to check out China in the World, where Paul and some of his colleagues interview some uh, real luminaries in the world of diplomacy and uh and, and, and politics, just an absolutely brilliant, brilliant show. Uh, now, on recommendations, uh, Paul, what do, you, what do you have for us? 
Well, I was going to recommend Seneca, but uh, you, you've just done that. Um, <laughs> well, then, uh, and then I was going to recommend China and the World podcast, but you've done that also. You know, uh, one of the things I want to recommend, and, and hopefully uh, my colleague will have a chance to come and meet you, but one of the, the really excellent scholars at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center is a Chinese scholar, an expert on North Korea, Tong Zhao. And um, if you haven't read his material, his publications, he's quoted often in the Western press. He is, is excellent on these issues, and he's done a couple podcasts lately. I do most of them, but he's, he's, he's done a couple lately, and, and I'd like to have him come over here. You know, any, anything on the Carnegie Tsinghua website, I, I'd encourage you uh, to read as well. In terms of, this is articles, podcasts, books, is that what you want? You know, I mentioned Jessica Matthews earlier in our discussion. She was the former president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace for 18 years. She's also the president of the Carnegie Endowment that moved us to this global think tank uh, position that we have now. Uh, She just wrote an article uh, called The Singapore Sham. You know, I was pretty tough on the Trump administration on the Singapore summit. (laughs) She's even tougher. And um, I think it's a very good analysis of uh, the Singapore summit. I encourage you to read that. It was a New York uh, book review article that she had out. Uh, So that's one recommendation that I would have for you. That's great. Um, Since we are both podcast hosts and since I think podcasts are becoming a really important learning tool uh, I think it's high time that somebody came out with a really good podcast search engine. Well, one of our listeners has done that. Uh, he's created a a podcast search engine called listennotes.com, L-I-S-T-E-N notes.com. It's pretty amazing. I mean, if you're looking for every podcast appearance, say, of somebody who you're interested in or uh, every you know podcast that's discussed that person is included in his name in liner notes, if you're looking for uh, a particular topic that you're interested in, in, in researching, you're going to find it. Uh, you can sort by relevance or by date. It's very comprehensive. It's also very nicely designed. ListenNotes.com, highly recommended. Uh, so. I'll recommend one podcast if I can, and, sure, it's, and, it, and it's another think tank. So I'm 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 being fair here to other think tanks. CSIS, three they have like of my seventy of them, right? What's that? They have like seventy. They've got them. a lot, but three of my former uh, National Security Council colleagues, Mike Green, Victor Cha, and Sumi Terry. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah have an excellent great. podcast on North Korea called The Impossible State. Yeah, and uh, if you haven't good. if you haven't listened to that, uh, I mean, try China and the world first. And then you can try The Impossible State. It's really excellent. Once you've listened through our whole Seneca back catalog, then. (laughs) Hey, Paul Henley, what a delight to finally have you on the show. Let's hear a big round of applause for this brilliant, brilliant gentleman. Thank you. Thank you very much. I want to say a very warm thank you to Schwartzman College and to Joan Kaufman uh, for inviting both of us here and for allowing me to, uh, to, to come to deliver your, your inaugural address this morning. It was a lot of fun. Uh, so I got to take it out. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn and recorded, mixed, engineered, and edited by me. Uh, drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Leave us a positive review at the Apple iTunes Store and tune in next week for more fascinating conversations on China from the Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening and we will see you next week. Take care.
Yeah!